This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jim Schuto, live tonight from Lviv, Ukraine, along with Laura Coates, back in the States, where there is big news this evening. The State Department is now considering labeling Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, a designation till now reserved only for North Korea, Iran, Cuba, and Syria. It would be a significant development and a sea change in relations between two superpowers if that were to happen. We will take that to a key administration official in just a moment. Meanwhile, a new phase of this ruthless invasion has begun. President Volodymyr Zelensky announced to his nation tonight that Russian forces have started the long-expected and expanded battle for Donbass in the east of this country. He told CNN Friday what happens in Donbass could then set the course for the rest of the war. Russia has completed regrouping troops for this new major offensive, according to Ukrainian officials. And although the fiercest battles are in the east and south, Lviv, here in the west, got hit by at least four different missile strikes today. You can see some video of one of those missiles as they streaked across the sky. Watch how fast it goes. We'll have more in just a moment. Laura also has breaking developments this hour on the uptick in violence back home. Yes, Jim, 10 mass shootings here in the U.S. just this weekend, and it was a holy weekend at that for many. Gunfire, at least at two house parties in Easter celebration, there's one at a mall, and elsewhere have left eight dead and dozens injured. And this on the heels of that horrific subway mass shooting in New York City just last week. So many in Congress keep saying we're going to do something about the gun violence epidemic, but the question really is when will something be done about it? We'll put that question directly to a member of Congress. That's ahead. There's also big breaking news tonight on the federal mask mandate for travelers. A Florida judge striking down the administration's masking rules for planes and other public transportation. This is less than a week after the CDC extended it through the 3rd of May. So what does all this mean? And this comes amid a new uptick in COVID cases. The question is, will the administration really appeal But first, back to Jim with what he personally witnessed in the city of Lviv just today. I mean, it's unbelievable what you're seeing right now. Listen, Laurie, you know, terror has been part of the Russian battle plan since the start of this invasion. And Russia brought terror here to Lviv today. Multiple times those air raid sirens went off. And in the morning, those sirens were followed by the booms, the explosions of missile strikes. A missile streaks across the sky over Lviv in western Ukraine. Russian forces launching cruise missiles on multiple targets here. An auto repair shop. Just as it was getting ready to open with several employees on site. Transformed into an inferno. Also hit what the regional military governor described as three military warehouses. This is the scene of one of the missile strikes this morning. You can see the emergency responders back here. But as we arrived, another air raid signal went off. The soldiers concerned that this will be a secondary strike on the same target. Ukrainian soldiers ordered us behind a concrete barricade. Do you understand you can film this? Nervous about us filming any soldiers or military facilities, one member of the Territorial Defense Forces cocked his rifle as he shouted at us to move back. As other sirens warned of more missiles on the way, we took shelter in a closed restaurant. 
After several hours, finally the all-clear signal. And this is what was left behind. Two ambulances outside one of the damaged military warehouses, guarded by Ukrainian soldiers. Damaged cars, fallen trees, a section of railroad track thrown dozens of yards by the force of the blast. The auto repair shop destroyed. The owner told CNN several were killed here. In all, the victims numbered at least seven dead, 11 wounded, including a child, one toll in one city, among many suffering through war here. You know, Jim, for many people, we know, of course, about the millions of people who have fled Ukraine into neighboring countries. But for a lot of people, at least 200,000 people, they were internally displaced and actually going to Lviv, where it seemed to be a safer part of the country. I mean, where else can families go now if that's no longer the case? Look at what's happening there now. No question. You know, Lviv has been something of a lifeboat throughout all this, a place of refuge for people either transiting through here on their way to Poland and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, or just to stay here and hoping to wait out the war to some degree. But of course today, and it's happened before, but it's been some time, but today the war came here again. So, so the question is, do they then move out of the country, as many millions have done? Do they look for other cities? The trouble is Russia is showing that it can strike anywhere in this country. And I wonder, what would it mean now if the U.S. were to label Russia that state sponsor of terrorism, as you mentioned? It's, in effect, a new round, a new category of sanctions. It would prevent Russia from buying a whole host of products and dealing in a whole host of trade, both for military and commercial products. And then, as a second step, it would then penalize other countries that would deal with Russia in those same categories be a significant step. I mean, th think of the club Russia would be joining there, Iran, North Korea, uh, and Syria. And I wonder, when you think about what's going on, I mean, there's, there's been a lot that's happened since you visited the first time in Lviv. You've been back now. You are back in Ukraine. What's it like now? How has it changed? Is it fundamentally different? Do you feel a sense that there's been a lot that's changed since the last time you were there? Well, I'll tell you, you know, we've been here, goodness, uh, I don't know, 36 hours maybe on this on this trip and, and have had four air raid sirens and, and one of those followed by multiple missile strikes. It just it's a reminder that there really is no safe place uh, in this country. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, as this broadens the, the impact of the U.S. possibly designating another superpower, a state sponsor of terrorism. That's something I discussed with a member of the Biden administration. Uh, just a short time ago, I spoke with Matt Miller. He's special advisor to the U.S. National Security Council. Matt, state sponsor of terrorism, is the administration close to declaring Russia a state sponsor of terrorism? How long before the president makes a decision? Well, Jim, as you know, there's a formal process that, uh, that has to be undertaken by the State Department to make that kind of uh, determination. But what I will say about that when you look at what flows from uh, designating a country as a state sponsor of, of terrorism, it is a number of sanctions and other economic measures, many of which we have already imposed. If you look at the packages of sanctions we've imposed on Russia, uh, they're extremely serious and have, have brought uh, enormous uh, economic devastation to the Russian economy. So that is uh, a tool that remains in our toolbox. And of course, we continue to look at all available measures. But if you look at the actual practical implications of what that designation would be, uh, we have pretty much uh, put into place all of those measures uh, already. 
I was in Geneva, this is just last summer, as you know, when, when Putin and Biden met, and the discussion there was of strategic stability between Russia and the U.S. And here we are less than a year later, and the U.S. now considering declaring Russia a terror sponsor. Did the Biden administration misread Putin? Not at all. We've always made clear that we wanted strategic stability. We wanted to have uh, a stable relationship with Russia. We wanted a Russia that would contribute to European security. But we were always ready if Russia chose another, another path. Even leading up to the final days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we made clear that we were open to diplomatic negotiations. But that wasn't mean we weren't also clear-eyed about the threat that Russia posed. We've been clear-eyed about that since the beginning of the administration. Even before the invasion, this administration was committing hundreds of millions of dollars of security assistance to Ukraine. And of course, in the days since the invasion, we've continued to flow billions of dollars of security assistance to Ukraine to help it it defend itself against Russia while imposing those serious economic measures uh, that I spoke of a minute ago. As you know, the U.K. prime minister has visited Ukraine. The leaders of a number of NATO allies have visited Ukraine. When will the U.S. send a senior official to visit here? Well, that's not something that we would discuss publicly uh, for security reasons. If we do um, uh, send a senior high-level representative to Ukraine, uh, that's something that that we would not announce in advance. But we do uh, continue to be in close contact with the the Ukrainian government at at very senior levels. The president talks regularly with President Zelensky. Secretary Blinken talks with his counterpart. And, of course, the national security advisor here at the White House, Jake Sullivan, talks nearly every day uh, with a senior advisor to President Zelensky. So while we're not there on the ground in Ukraine right now, we are in, in a close daily contact with our counterparts in the Ukrainian government. Well, those other leaders face the same security risks. And by the way, other diplomatic teams have been returning to Ukraine, France, France among them, and U.S. diplomats still not here. Why is the U.S. behind on this? Why isn't it leading the way? Uh, Look, every country has to make its own security assessments. I will say we continue to assess the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Um, uh, Obviously, we want to be back in Ukraine. We want to have a diplomatic presence there. We didn't want to leave in the first place, but we have to put first and foremost the safety and security of, um, uh, of American diplomats and American personnel who would be there on the ground. So we will continue to to assess the situation. And when it's safe to return to Ukraine, we will do so. Today, as the offensive, the Russian offensive intensifies in the East, the Pentagon explained their plan to, to, quote, train the trainers. This is in terms of teaching Ukrainians to use these American howitzers the administration is providing in this latest uh, tranche uh, of of weapons. Given, though, that that offensive is already underway, I, I just wonder why didn't that training begin earlier? Why weren't these weapons on the ground earlier? Well, Jim, as you know, we did have uh, American personnel in Ukraine training the Ukrainian military before this invasion. We spent months, years training the Ukrainian military to help them get ready for any acts of Russian aggression and to help them defend the Russian aggression that has been happening since 2014. So this training that's going on the howitzers is not a new act for the United States. Now, look, we do flow new capabilities into the Ukrainians all the time. Some of those new capabilities require new sets of training. So as we do that, we do it as quickly as we can. But I will say the speed and the pace at which we're getting this assistance into Ukraine is really unprecedented. Just since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've committed another, uh, you know, more than $2 billion of security assistance, 50 million rounds of ammunition. We announced last week we would provide 40,000 artillery rounds. So, look, 
We are always looking to do this as quickly as, po as we possibly can. But I will say the amount of security assistance that we've gotten into this country in a, in a short period of time, I, I really do think has, has been an accomplishment for our colleagues over at the Pentagon. As we witness here and the world witnesses war crimes, evidence of war crimes by Russia from Bucha to, to Mariupol and beyond. The, the phrase diplomatic off-ramp is one I hear less often from administration officials. Uh, do you see Putin as being negotiable at this point, someone that you can negotiate with, that there is a path out of this where this is not settled on the battlefield? I mean, his positions have become more, not less maximalist in many ways. Yeah, look, Jim, uh, obviously it takes two sides to have a negotiation. The Ukrainians have said they are willing to sit down in good faith and negotiate. And the Russians have said the same, but it's been clear when those negotiations have actually taken place that they're not coming, they're not starting from a place of good faith. And at the same time, they claim to want to have negotiations. They continue to launch uh, new attacks. We're seeing them launch new attacks in the East even today. So look, we don't believe that the Russians are serious about negotiations now. So what can we do as the United States? Mm -hmm. Two things. One, we can continue to flow security assistance into the Ukrainians so they can put pressure on the Russians on the battlefield. And two, we continue, can continue to ramp up the economic consequences on Russia if it continues this war. We believe those two things are the best things we can do to strengthen the Ukrainians' hands, first on the battlefield and eventually at the negotiation table if the Russians ever do get serious about negotiations. Matt Miller at the White House, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Jim. Russian forces redeployed to Donbass in the east after failing to capture the capital, Kyiv. And now we are learning where thousands of Putin's soldiers may have been based during that time. Phil Black's about to take us to a forest north of Kyiv. See what Ukrainian forces found there coming up. A senior U.S. defense official tells us there are telltale signs that Russia is learning from its failures in northern Ukraine and then applying those lessons as it refocuses on its new offensive in the east and the south. Much of that, it seems, is tactical. Heavy artillery, aviation support, and nearly a dozen additional battalion groups have been moved into the area. But will that be enough to change the course of this war? CNN's Phil Black joins me tonight from Kyiv. Phil you got an exclusive look at a Russian military camp uh, outside town that, that really spoke to some of the challenges they faced during that attempted assault on the capital. What did you learn there? Jim, this was a, a secret, a hidden camp that at one point was a base for thousands uh, of invading soldiers. Uh, soldiers uh, that also encountered local members of the population. And they talk about the brutality they experienced in those uh, encounters. It all gives a powerful insight into how they lived and how they behaved once uh, that effort to take the capital effectively stalled. A warning, this report has some disturbing images. The sign is a warning, beware mines. Go on. The forest serves as protection too, a natural screen concealing a vast secret. Here among the trees, about an hour's drive north of Kiev, are the remains of a sprawling Russian military camp. We're shown around by Ukrainian special forces. 
морской пехоты Российской Федерации. This soldier says the positions were held by Russian Marines. We see a sprawling network of underground fighting positions, command posts, sleeping areas and ammunition storage. While everywhere there is evidence of how the Russians lived, and that evidence suggests their existence here was neither disciplined nor comfortable. It is so quiet here now, just some bird noise and a light breeze, but recently there were 6,000 Russian soldiers bedded down through these woods in a camp that is so large you can't see where it begins and where it ends. Living here would have been hard. It was through the coldest of the winter days. Four weeks stopped here, short of Kiev, after they failed to take the capital quickly. The silence is broken by efforts to deal with some unidentified ordinance. This camp is damning proof of Russia's failures on this front. Poor preparation, desperately wrong assumptions about the numbers and resources needed to conquer Kiev. What lessons do you take from all of this that will apply to the to the coming battle for Donbass in the east? He says we see the volume of forces that invaded this area and we understand that will be two to three times greater in the Donbass. This force wasn't confined to the forest. Its commanding officers lived a little more comfortably in the nearby village of Zdizhivka. Here, civilians tell disturbingly familiar stories. Vitaly, a local mechanic, says he was detained and interrogated for almost 24 hours. He says he was beaten, blindfolded, tied up and subjected to mock executions. He says he's never known fear like it and constantly thought those were his last moments on earth. Local priest Vasily Bensa describes dealing with the aftermath of even greater cruelty. He says he found five men tortured and killed in the garden, two more in the forest, and the Russians brought him two dead women and told him to bury them. Other Russians in this area camped out in fields with their artillery pieces and stole what comforts they could, a mattress, alcohol, the works of Shakespeare. So from these firing positions, grad rockets flew through the sky towards Hostomel, which is only a relatively short distance away. And when they hit the earth, it was often civilians who felt their power. You can see the result. Oh. So many people... They were hiding in there? Yes. In Hostomel, resident Dmitry Nekazakov shows the aftermath of a Russian rocket strike. This is the epicenter of explosion. And where some of its victims were temporarily buried. I feel only hate. Only hate? Yes. We can't forgive it for long, maybe for life. For now, the enemies in the forest, fields and villages have left this part of Ukraine. The fruits of their brief stay, the pain, trauma and loathing remain. Jim, what we saw showed that the force and firepower committed by Russia to the Battle of Kiev was ultimately insufficient in terms of numbers and quality. And the Ukrainian military also very much believes that Russia has learnt from those mistakes uh, and is determined not to repeat them in the battle for the East, Jim. Insufficient but brutal. I'm struck by that image there of the names on those crosses recorded just in pen on plastic lids. Uh, gosh, the war just so ruthless. Phil Black and Keith, thanks, thanks so much for a fantastic story. More here in Ukraine later this hour. 
But coming up as well, the CDC's mask mandate for travelers is no longer in effect because a federal judge just struck it down. Will that decision stick? Laura talks to a former Biden administration COVID response coordinator. That's coming up. get back to Jim on the ground in Lviv in just a bit. But first, something you haven't seen in a while. Bare faces at the airport and on the train and on the bus. Tonight, it is legal to go maskless on public transportation. This after a federal judge has struck down the Biden administration's travel mask mandate. But you might want to keep the mask handy for at least two reasons. One, the ruling still has to be reviewed. And by the way, number two, not every agency and company is on board with going mask optional at this point in time. So the question is, what now? Joining me tonight, former senior advisor of the Biden administration on COVID response, Andy Slavitt. Andy, it's good to see you. What a night this is. I want to just read from you a portion of this judge's ruling because she has a lot to say in deciding not to have this mask mandate. She said in a ruling, wearing a mask cleans nothing. At most, it traps virus droplets, but it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveyance. You say this might be more of a political decision at play here than one that's based, obviously, perhaps in the science. What do you think about this decision? Well, look, a Wyoming uh, freedom-loving organization, so to speak, uh, found a judge in Florida who I believe is 34 years old was appointed after President Trump lost the election, a former clerk to, to Judge Thomas, who I think who the American Bar Association said wasn't qualified for the court, and who uh, is now stretching her her logic beyond just what's legally allowable where where she's wrong, but even further to interpreting the kinds of examples that are meant to stand based upon uh, this law. So it is um, uh, it's it's a bad ruling. I don't think it's just in the law, but it's also uh, very tricky for the Biden administration to challenge it because uh, at this stage, it's not precedential. Uh, and the, the the Biden administration will need the power and the CDC will need to maintain the power to impose a mandate if situation gets worse. So that's going to be a tough decision uh, for, for the Biden administration to make. Now, of course, the judge, part of the logic that she put forth in the ruling was that there was not the adequate notice and comment period that's required when you put out a rule. And the other part, which I think is to your point, is the notion that there was no logical justification that was given to extend it the extra two weeks. But on that point, part of what they talked about is, you know, you, you of course, used to be a part of the administration's COVID response team. So I think you have the inside track in hearing what is thought of. What was behind the decision, do you think, to try to extend it several more weeks? I think it was in part the, you know, the, the, the variant of the Omicron um, variant and, the, and also thinking about the hospital capacity rates. Was that part of the logic? It's exactly the logic. You know, I think that by May 3rd, which is the date that this was set to expire, you know, we will have enough data on, the, on this potential BA2 wave. This is the, the latest Omicron version to really know whether or not it's what it's going to amount to. And that time is very useful to the CDC, who made the decision based upon data and science and wants to do it with great care. You know, the airlines, which I think have been out saying publicly how much they care about our safety and our health and so forth, you know, didn't wait 
very long, didn't wait but minutes to say that they were going to not allow, uh, they're not require masks uh, on most of their major uh, uh, flights. So it'd be nice for the public to feel like somebody's watching the data and making these decisions uh, and, and cares about public health. And it didn't seem like that consideration uh, was there. You know, Andy, to that point, you know, we have some footage because, as you said, the TSA has now confirmed that it's not going to enforce the mask mandate. And there were people who were on planes actually cheering when the announcements were made. I'm going to play this for you. Take a listen. That it's official on Southwest Airlines for this whole. Uh, Yay, no more masks! Woo! On our Delta Hub, it says masks, no optional for Southwest Airlines now of course not the the biggest of cheers but obviously this is new that's going to travel and thinking about it but again you shake your head a little bit this notion thinking about it there are some consequences to this and i would note that united airlines and alaska air have already dropped their mask mandates do you think that every other airline is going to follow suit and more importantly What's the consequence if this happens? We've heard a lot about the air filtration cell system and filter system on airplanes. Um, and of course, people take issue with being able to go to restaurants in most places, to Madison Square Garden and beyond, but not on airplanes. Is there a real risk, Andy, in terms of having the mask mandate lifted without the research you talked about earlier? Well, this is, a, this is kind of a victory for mob rule. So uh, all, the, all the major airlines are going to drop the mandate. There may be one that doesn't, but uh, so far almost all have decided that they will. And part of the reason is because this has been a huge burden on flight attendants who've had to enforce what have been a, a very small number of very loud and uncivil uh, folks who have uh, basically said, you know, I dare you to enforce this mask mandate. It's not a comfortable position for the flight attendants to be in. And so this small number of people uh, and I'm sure some of them uh, cheering. We'd all love for the pandemic to be over, uh, but but uh, to say that it's over just because um, uh, you know, we no, no longer have to wear a mask, don't interpret that as to say this is over. So my advice, you know, and I'm going to be flying tomorrow, is I will wear an N90 KN94 mask. Uh, I will wear a well-fitting KN94 mask, and if other people aren't wearing uh, their masks, uh, you know, a combination of my mask and filtration um, will will uh, hopefully do the job to keep me safe. It's not as good so wait, as if so everybody- Andy, excuse me, so should the administration then appeal the decision then? Obviously it's politically tense There's and it's very dynamic, but should they appeal the decision? Look, I think that's a consideration that they're making this evening. Um, I, I think they're considering it. I think what my advice is what's most important for them is to preserve the right to reinstate a mandate if we get into another wave in the fall or winter, that's really bad. And so the challenge is if they do appeal and lose, if they find another judge like this one, then they will not be able, they will lose the lever entirely. So if they can find a way to appeal uh, to, to preserve the rights, I think what we need to do is do everything we can to preserve the right of the CDC to make this judgment in this situation. We can all have all our complaints with the CDC and God knows they're not perfect, but I'd rather have this CDC and not a 33-year-old judge or an airline CEO making this decision. Andy Slavitt, thank you so much. You know, thank coming you. up, the life and death battle over another epidemic, a new wave of mass shootings in America. 
And a member of Congress and former prosecutor believes it's time for law enforcement to rethink its approach. He'll tell us how up next. hundred and forty four and climbing. One hundred and forty four is the number of mass shootings the U.S. has seen just since this year began. I remind you, it's only April. Let that sink in for a second. That means we've seen at least one hundred and forty four instances in which four or more people were shot. And that does not include the shooter. Ten of these mass shootings just happened over this past holiday weekend, leaving eight dead and dozens more injured. It's all tragic. But let's zero in on one from yesterday alone. A house party at an Airbnb rental in Pittsburgh where two 17-year-old boys were killed. 90 shots were fired in a crowd of 200 people, and many of them were children. Please think there might be multiple shooters, and they are still, right now, on the loose. I want to bring in Democratic Congressman Connor Lamb, who just recovers much of the Pittsburgh area, is also a U.S. Senate candidate. Congressman Lamb, it's really unbelievable to think about these numbers that we're seeing just from over the weekend alone and what's taking place. And you have tweeted out, you've talked about this issue and the ideas of what needs to take place. You say that Congress needs to do something. Talk to me about why the something has not yielded actual results. It's one of the most uh, mind-blowing things I've seen since my time in Congress. Um, I don't see how anyone could object to the idea of controlling the flow of illegal firearms. You know, and we don't know for sure yet in this case, but I am willing to bet, based on my experience as an AUSA, and I know you come from that world too, uh, there's a pretty good chance that these firearms were being possessed and, and certainly fired illegally, um, as they are in most violent crimes. Uh, we should be dealing with that from the federal level. That's what the ATF is there for. Um, but we should be imposing better background check rules, closing loopholes, um, and just giving the ATF the resources they need to actually intervene and stop firearm traffickers and, and put them away. But uh, we don't police that nearly as aggressively as we do other types of crimes, and it's long past time for that to change. I know part of your insight is informed by being a federal prosecutor like myself and the idea of you think there's a need for a reprioritization of things as opposed to focusing maybe so much on drug trafficking rings. You think the priority should be more on gun trafficking. Is that right? We certainly need some kind of a shift. I mean, look, heroin and fentanyl have killed a lot of people in my community, too, and and we have to make sure we continue to go after that. But I, I think you know that there is still a lot of excess uh, dollars and capacity when it comes to prosecuting nonviolent drug crime in America as a result of the war on drugs. And the NRA in particular has always battled the ATF's budget and their capabilities. Um, And that's just a fact. And so you can look at it today and the DEA still gets three or four bucks, I think, for every dollar that the ATF gets. Um, The ATF agents I worked with were some of the finest police, you know, I ever saw in my career. And if you gave them better tools, Uh, they could stop a lot of these guns from getting in the hands of people. And just look at this incident. You have 200 people at this party, and they still haven't identified the suspects, which tells you that people may not be talking. That happens a lot in violent crime situations. It's very hard to chase down witnesses and reconstruct these crimes afterward. That's why you have to try to get in on the front end and stop the flow of these firearms. Uh, We have really common sense laws and proposals to do that. They pass the House every time, and they get stonewalled by Republicans in the U.S. Senate. 
And, you know, the president, I think, to that point, has recently talked about the issue of ghost guns. And obviously, ghost guns are on the rise. They don't, you know, don't comprise the overwhelming majority of the crimes people are seeing, but it's still an issue nonetheless. Do you think that that is part of the path forward, focusing on the idea of the non-serial numbers that are attached to them, trying to focus and hone in on the ability to be able to construct these weapons? Or is the problem part of the fact, Congressman, that there are so many different caveats people will give? They'll look at a mass shooting like the one, unfortunately, the Tree of Life synagogue, and they'll say, well, that was an issue related to perhaps anti-Semitism. They'll talk about a mass shooting at a party, and they'll say, well, that might be an issue that has other ramifications. Look at a, a school shooting in different ways. Are we, are we caveating ourselves out of common sense gun control by trying to compartmentalize the use and the motivation of each shooter? Yeah, some people do that, but but not me. I mean, my point is there's a common element tying all of the incidents you just mentioned together, and that's the guns. Um, and so we should we owe the public the ability to uh, just have common sense laws that make sure guns only end up in the hands of people who are legally entitled to have them. That doesn't mean you're going to stop every crime, but you would stop a ton of violent crime if we got better at that. And the reason, this is what I don't think people understand, the reason that we are not very good at that right now is because of years and years of federal policy backed by the NRA and pushed by the Republican Party for the most part um, that has made us weak at this compared to other areas of crime. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot we need to do to intervene in the lives of these young people as well. You see that, you know, in many of the incidents that are happening in our big cities, but it's all about prevention and intervention on the front end. Um, because as you can see right now in America, you know, it, it's, it's oftentimes too late once these people get guns in their hands. Prevention better than cure. Thank you, Congressman Connor Lamb. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You know, coming up, the app that's saving lives in Ukraine. Like so much else in that country, it's now a vital resource, far beyond what anyone could have imagined before this war. Jim talks to a member of the team that developed it next. The starkest warnings for Ukraine right now focus on the east, where a new Russian offensive is underway. But that does not mean the West is safe. I'm in Lviv. It was hit by missiles just hours ago. The air raid sirens have been sounding regularly since then all day. And it doesn't mean the north is safe either. President Zelensky says that if the eastern Donbass region is lost to Russia, Kyiv could be threatened again. So how should the capital city remain Vigilant. Oleg Polovinko and his team have an innovative solution. He is the IT director for Kyiv's city council, and he joins me now. Oleg, thank you for joining me. First, I do want to get your reaction to President Zelensky's warning uh, connecting, in effect, the offensive in Donbass to Kyiv's safety. Are, are you concerned that if Donbass falls, that could be another chance for Russia to go after Kyiv? Uh, good evening. <clears throat> yeah, you're absolutely right uh, that this uh, scenario can be uh, can be done. I, I was in Kyiv uh, in the days leading up to the invasion. At the time, it was a peaceful place. Places were open. It's been through many stages that, since then. What is daily life now in the capital? We hear of municipal, municipal IT employees like yourself carrying guns, not, not leaving their offices. How are you doing? 
uh, of course, uh, the IT team carrying the guns and preparing for the bad scenario uh, because we saw it uh, a few weeks ago when the Russian troops was quite close to Kiev and our application was one of the channel uh, information channel for our citizens uh, because any other channels cannot help them and they can find the groceries, the food, uh, the fuel through our store. Uh, from uh, our application. This is remarkable for, for folks watching now. What your team did, they took a municipal app that's usually used for parking tickets. You changed it so that, as you say, Ukrainians could not just find groceries open, pharmacies open, but also use the Internet in underground bomb shelters. How did you make that happen? Yeah, that was uh, one initiative from the Internet providers. Uh, which is a lot on Kiev, and we asked them to help us to cover the bomb shelters, uh, to cover it with internet, with good connection, with Wi-Fi, and they help us. And uh, in uh, almost uh, one week, we covered more than 800 bomb shelters with good Wi-Fi connections in cooperation with private and uh, government internet companies. Did you ever think that, that you would turn... A- a parking tickets app into something that people could use to, to save lives. Yeah, previously, uh, Kyiv Digital, it's the name of our municipal app. It was focused more on transport services, parking services, electronic democracy, mm-hmm. and some information from mayor. Uh, in first day, we understand that we need uh, many information for our citizens about the air attack, about uh, bomb shelter, where it can, uh, where it can go. So we redesigned the application and uh, take out all unneeded in this situation, uh, in, in war, uh, unneeded function and left only that which helps people to be in a city which is under attack in, in the war. One thing about this war that has captured the world's attention is the resourcefulness of, of Ukrainians, like yourself, also the courage, right? To average people taking up arms. If they're not taking up arms, they're finding ways to help the people taking up arms uh, or doing things like you're doing, uh, using technology to help in the defense of the country. What's behind that? How, how do Ukrainians m- maintain the energy, the hope uh, to keep fighting like this? From from my side, it's quite easy. We are fighting for our homes, uh, from uh, for our lives. And from other side, uh, of course, technology helps us uh, to be ahead and uh, help our militaries and help our country to survive and to help. I never imagined that Kiev Digital will help uh, to save lives to our citizens because previously it w- was for comfortable life. But now, yeah, it uh, helps to self, to save lives to people. And Ukrainians, I'm, I'm not sure that any kind of uh, losers we can accept. We don't leave our homes and our lands. So we will be fine to the end. Well, uh, the world admires your courage and your innovation. Oleg Polovinko, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We do have breaking news tonight here in Ukraine. New drone footage of the southern port city of Mariupol 
shows smoke rising from the Azovstal steel plant. Uh, this is key because this is one of Mariupol's last bastions still under Ukrainian control. Look at the smoke rising there. CNN has geolocated and authenticated the video. Cannot, however, confirm the date it was shot. We are watching it closely, and we'll be right back. Jim, this is your second time back in Ukraine, and I'm just so curious about the resilience of the Ukrainian people and the conversation that you've been having. Listen, tough as nails, right? We were out moments after four missiles hit this city, and people were already going back with their lives, uh, going to work, driving through the streets, going to stores, going to school. You see that, but you also see in their faces, I think, an understanding of just how long a haul this country is in for. Uh, You see it in their faces, uh, and it's sad to see. Laura, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to be here in Ukraine every night this week for CNN Tonight, and I have the pleasure that Laura will be with, with me reporting from Washington. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.